Hello, everyone. I'm Becca, dietitian by trade, mom 24-7, wife from the start, and when there's a few extra hours in the day, you might find me hitting the trails or on horseback. And I'm Kara, a therapist to women, a mom to a boy, an entrepreneur, mountain junkie, and a postpartum runner. And this is Fit for a Queen, a podcast that's devoted to the female athlete wanting to balance the teeter-totter of all the things we desire out of life as women. Performance, health, intellect, and taking time for self, even if we only get one minute out of the day. We're so excited to be bringing you the queens in the athletic world who have done just that. Okay, ladies, take a seat at your thrones, grab your crowns, and welcome to Fit for a Queen. Welcome back, queens. We have a repeat offender. I mean, <laughs> guest. Yes. <laughs> we have Kate Bennett. We'll have to put links to our previous awesome mm-hmm. episode with her, but we yeah. have exciting news to share that we're going to be talking about her new book. Kate Bennett is a clinical sports psychologist and a former athletic trainer, coach, and two-time national track cycling champion. She combines her sport experiences and clinical expertise to support the performance and mental health needs of athletes. Dr. Bennett specializes in the treatment of athletes with eating disorders and recently authored Treating Athletes with Eating Disorders. Welcome back, Kate. Hi, Kate. Thank you. It's so good to hear your voices again. It's been a long time. <laughs> no oh kidding. Gosh, it has. <laughs> so I think you were on probably our first yes. season, mm-hmm. yep. which I always go by how old my son is because <laughs> we started when he was born. So it's been like five years. Four? Oh my gosh. He's turning five on Monday. So yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah. I mean, it was, yeah, it probably, that sounds about right because my little guy is four and yeah. I, I think he was very he was young when I did it. So that sounds too. about right. Well, yeah. to, to share a little bit of funny, weren't we all at like the dinner table? And I said, Carol, why aren't you having a glass of wine when we were at the conference that yeah. spurred this idea? And you're like, uh, I can't, Becca. I'm pregnant. And I was like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> and here we still are in the studio <laughs> figuring things out. Oh, man. That feels like just the other day. Yeah, it has. Well, we're so glad yeah, to have you back. it does. And I'm sure it's been a crazy year and a half for you out there in Denver. Yeah, tell us a little bit about what's been going on in your life and your practice and what it's looked like since COVID. Yeah, so it's been kind of a whirlwind. We So I actually submitted my book proposal about a week before COVID hit. So when mm. I submitted my book proposal, I was like, oh, I, I've got this professional project I'm going to work on this year. And I submitted it and then COVID hit and then it was accepted. And I was like, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> yeah, I bet. So, you know, in the midst of COVID, I, I had unknowingly taken on this massive project, but you, you, life in, during COVID was just hard. You know, the early days being a sports psychologist and my practice kind of just went still very quiet just because all of a sudden sports were canceled. And I started questioning my business model, like, is this actually going to be sustainable? Mm-hmm. But, you know, for better or worse, I also, I do a lot of clinical work. And so athletes started having mental health concerns. And so my practice rebounded very quickly because as soon as, you know, sport was interrupted long-term, all sorts of things started popping up with anxiety mm-hmm. and depression. And so many eating disorders came out of COVID and continue to come out of COVID. And so my practice has been, you know, really, really busy in a wonderful way. And 
my daughter started kindergarten oh during the gosh. last fall, so fall of 2020. So I became a kindergarten teacher on top mm-hmm. of a psychologist. <laughs> and that was a really fascinating social experiment for the two of us, trying to convince her to do Zoom calls when she hated being online and she hated the online platforms. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty, I would say, tumultuous period of life, but we continue to find joy in the little things. And our family, fortunately, we're a huge outdoor family. So we felt like our lifestyle wasn't actually all that impacted because we could continue to do the things that we loved. And so while maybe we were gathering less with groups and families and communities, we still got to live the life that we love to live as a small group. And you know, I feel like our family really was able to enjoy a lot of time together and really adventure a lot together over the past year and a half. So a lot of stress, but also a lot of joy built into that just based on how we like to live our lives. Mm-hmm. Becca, that reminds me, the next pandemic, we're going to go to Colorado. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're going to have the cabin that, remember, we just sit in we just silence. Sit. Yeah. The silent, the cis cabin. The silent cabin. Sit in silence. <laughs> our retreat. Okay. We, we can have a room for you in there. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So tell us kind of what spurred you to put in this this book idea and let's take this to life. We want to hear what our listeners can expect, your unique approach and the fact that you've been an athletic trainer, a coach, a champion athlete, and now sports psychologist and now mom. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the book actually, I mean, going back to Berkeley, the book came about in Berkeley. I had -hmm. presented, it was my last talk there. I don't even remember. That must have been pre-COVID, so 2019. Mm -hmm. And I had done the talk on how do you integrate sports psychology, you know, and performance enhancement tools into eating disorder treatment and how can you use those types of interventions to motivate athletes and hold them accountable. And I I really enjoyed the talk, but somebody came up to me afterwards and and she was a professor at Stanford. She's like, you should write a book. And I was like, "Ah, I don't have time to write a book. I'm busy. I'm a mom. I've got young kids. And she's like, no, you should really write a book. Like this, this is really good. You need to write a book. And I was like, and I kept coming up with excuses. And she's like, and then she told me she was a professor at Stanford. And I was like, okay, well, you you kind of know what you're talking about. And if you aren't dropping the subject, maybe I should take you more serious, right? Like it wasn't just like somebody's like, oh, that was a great talk. You should really do more with it. it she was really, you know, persistent on this idea <laughs> that you've got something valuable to share with our community and you have a really relatable way of sharing it. And, and she was also a mom and she's like, I can tell you my kids are in their teens and life doesn't get easier. It's not like because you have young kids, it's hard. Having children is hard and, and it doesn't point. matter their age. You're always going to be busy. And you really have information to share. And so I took that conversation and I sat on it for quite a while. I mean, that would have been July of 2019. Mm -hmm. And I sat on it and I talked about it with my husband and my close friends. And at that point, I also, I I love presenting. I really enjoy presenting. It's a, a passion of mine. But I also kind of felt like I had talked about all that I had to talk about. And so I was like, well, a book would be a fun new professional goal, something for me to work on that would be a little bit different where I still get to contribute to the community and share my knowledge, but in a different platform and a different challenge for me. And so then I really started to wrap my head around it. And a gym that I work out here locally, there's a woman who is a book editor. And so we went out to coffee and I picked her brain and she's kind of like, oh, this is really hard. I don't know if you could do it. And then I told her more about my conversation with the person at Berkeley and I told her more about my background. She's like, Oh, you should totally write a book. And I was like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Five minutes ago, you were discouraging me. Now you think like I have legit street cred. So 
now you're taking me serious. And so, you know, be- between these these women who really, you know, I would say have just really solid platforms in the communities that they're in. And I was like, okay, I need to do this. Like, it's, I think it would be a really great goal and challenge for myself personally and professionally. But also, I, I know that I have things that I could share that could be, you know, widely disseminated and hopefully be able to you know, use to be able to support athletes and really help them regain, you know, their health and well-being with regards to the recovery of eating disorders. So that really was the platform that launched it was a few conversations. And it, it, I kind of describe it as a whim, but it, it wasn't a whim. I'm a total introvert. I think long and hard about things and decisions before I make them. And so, I mean, I probably spent nine months before I decided to write my proposal thinking about whether or not I actually wanted to take on this project. And then it was accepted. And originally, I thought like, oh, this is going to be this short, sweet little book. I'm going to say what I want to say, and it'll be awesome. And then the publisher was like, oh, we want 50,000 words. Can you do that? And I was like, uh, sure. I had no clue what that meant. No, and then I, I looked at my dissertation, and I realized that my dissertation was 125 pages of only 20,000 words. Oh and I was gosh. like, oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. <laughs> what did I just sign up for? <laughs> and that's when like the reality really hit of the project that I had taken on. So, I mean, it it was a project. I promised my daughter I would not write another book for a very long time because it took, <laughs> I mean, it took up a lot of family time. That was really the only time I had to write was in the evenings and on the weekends. And so sure. my whole family sacrificed to be able to put this book out there, which I really appreciate. And I'm so grateful for, but yeah, it, it, it was a lot of work. And when I wrote my dissertation, I was single and I had no children and all I was doing was racing my bike and I was on internship. So like I had a lot of time to write the book and, and here I was writing twice that with very limited time, but I'm so glad that I did it. I'm really proud of it. But, but Kate, there's going to be something to say about, I can remember <laughs> about the only way I could get my daughter to sit and read. She's brilliant at school. She hates to read was okay. Your reading time, mommy's writing time. And so I would sit in my chair and work on writing for my book. And then she would read. And then it was just kind of fun to be like, oh, mommy, what are you writing about today? Mm -hmm. And then now fast forward, it's been, golly, almost three or four years. So I think you'll be surprised how much your family's going to remember this coming. Like your your birthing, I joke, you birthed your baby book. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, my gosh. Yes. So I'm so lucky to be in two authors in here. Oh, yeah. All right, Kara, let's I get know. that cabin and you write yours. <laughs> no, I would. I'd have to leave. <laughs> well, I, Kate, this is a, a unique perspective. Can you talk a little bit more about the, the approach to understanding the sport aspect as well as the eating disorder? Kind of that overlap of like your, your model, the performance plus eating disorder and how you use that in, in terms of like a treatment approach. Which is still rare. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. not that many out yeah. there that have this approach. So, yes. yeah, yeah you're filling know. a void. Yeah, yeah. I, I do feel like I'm a little bit, and I wouldn't say I'm a unicorn, but I feel like I stand in a strange space where, you know, I'm, I'm able to really appreciate what it means to be an athlete and what the coaches are looking for, given my background, both as a competitive athlete as well as a coach. And I think that that appreciation, you know, having been on truly on the performance end of things of wanting to work, you know, to my highest level. And, you know, I, I will openly say that I use disordered eating behaviors to be able to optimize my power to weight. I'm very fortunate that I never developed an eating disorder in that process, but I definitely was very aware of what I ate. I was very aware of when I was in season or coming close to a race, I, I, you know, I wouldn't eat quote unquote, what I call party foods, junk foods, those sorts of things. And 
And I did that to optimize my performance. And I was able to do that in a health and safe, safe way. But not all athletes are able to do that. And I, I, so I have existed in that space where power to weight was a big part of my sport. And I, it was a big part of my community and my culture. And it was common to you know, be really aware of what you were putting in your body and trying to optimize power to weight to achieve, you know, greater performances, higher performances. What I did learn, and and I will share this, that was early in my career when I was new to cycling. What I did learn as I advanced through cycling and as I matured as a cyclist is the more I listened to my body, the better I performed. The less I tried to control my intake and the more I nourished my body, you know, adequately according to what I wanted and needed, the better I performed, the, you know, the better my endurance was, the better my power was, the higher my stamina was at high, high power outputs. And so I played with it, though. I've been in that world and can understand when athletes are trying to adapt and modify their bodies to be their best athletes. I, I can understand and appreciate what they're saying. Clinically speaking, I know when that goes too far and I can see how dangerous and scary that gets. And so, you know, given my background as an athlete, given my background as a coach, having athletes say, hey, how can I do this to my body so that I can become a healthier, stronger athlete? You know, those those are hard questions that coaches are asked that athletes are facing with regards to wanting to perform at their highest level. And so I, I can appreciate that space, having lived it and been in it and breathed it. But I also, having come the full cycle of my cycling career, I also can see, wow, the more we listen to our bodies, you know, the the better nourished they are. And when we can really trust our bodies, they're going to perform at their highest levels. Our bodies are not robots. And so, you know, we can look at equations and we can read data and we can look at science and say, this is how my body needs to be to be my highest level as an athlete. But the truth is, is that our bodies are not robotic and we have unique genetics that actually affect how our bodies perform and how our bodies look. And if we're constantly trying to achieve something on paper that doesn't actually fit our body's unique genotype and phenotype, then it just doesn't work. And so I, I can appreciate the, the, the full conversation, you know, both from a lived experience as well as coaching, as well as clinically speaking with regards to what athletes are trying to do to achieve optimal performance. You know, and then clinically speaking, I went all in when I decided to become a specialist in the treatment of athletes and eating disorders. I went all in with regards to wanting to really understand the the illness inside and out and the illness being anorexia and bulimia and binge eating disorder and Ozfed, like all of them, not just one of them. You know, I think so often when we talk about Mm -hmm, eating disorders, mm -hmm. we narrow in and we focus on anorexia or restricting based disorders or you know, I think exercise is becoming a big part of that conversation, but we don't always talk about binge eating disorder. And I see that a ton, especially in endurance athletes who are constantly restricting their intake to try and achieve a certain body type. And then they end up, you know, binging in the evening. So I want to make sure we're talking about that as well. So I went all in on my clinical training so I could really understand the depths of the illness and, and what people experience and how difficult it is, as well as how to effectively treat these illnesses. And so I was all in, in the sport world. I, you know, I was really there. I was living that life. I was living that culture. And then I went all in on the clinical world. And I really wanted to understand as a um, professional, how to treat these illnesses and how to really, you know, understand what it means to, to bring somebody into health and the challenges that they face, face. And, you know, when, when we talk about me being kind of in this middle ground, it's true that I was all in, in sport culture and I was all in in the clinical world, working in a treatment facility. And then here I am in my private practice where I try to bridge that gap of being able to honor and respect athletes and their goals and their values, but also understanding clinically how dangerous, you know, morphing the body type can be and and really helping them try and figure out how do I find my healthy space in sport and how do I perform at my 
my highest level being able to honor the body that I have. Kate, you do such a great job of like sometimes some of the extremes that athletes will go to, they normalize. And I love you had this years ago at Female Athlete Conference. You had like a column and please clarify this for the listeners because I'm not going to do it justice. But it was basically like a driven athlete's going to do everything that you ask them to do because they know that it's going to better their performance. But an athlete that's struggling with a disorder is going to hit resistance, okay. probably going to have more anxiety, and that's how you can sort out the the two of them. Kate, I have that little postcard <laughs> that I, I use a lot, and I know it's good when I'm making the client uncomfortable because mm-hmm. there's so much truth to that of, like, the athlete – sort of drive versus the eating disorder drive. That is, yeah, a really good resource that I've used a lot. Oh, that's awesome to hear. I love that you still have it. That's awesome. Yes. (laughs) I have one and it's like sacred to me. (laughs) It's like laminated on the fridge. No, yeah. The the corners are bent. It's kind of like a postcard that you've had forever. (laughs) No. Maybe I need more. Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) But can you speak to that for a little bit, like a couple examples of where you feel like some of the normalization of sport has done an injustice to actually missing or vice versa, like some of the treatment approaches that may be overlooked because, again, we, we label it always a disorder, but some of it is that necessary drive for sport? You know, when we think about the drive for sport, and you, you actually just summarized it really great, Becca, with regards to wanting to achieve performance at the highest level, if if athletes are all in and they're, they're focused on performance and, and they really are doing it in a healthy way, if they're numb, you know, I'm going to use cycling as an example because it's so scientific, right? We've got power meters on the bike. We've got heart rate meters. Now you've got these things that track your sleep and your circadian rhythm and all of this. If the numbers are saying, hey, you know what? You are under-recovered. You need to rest. And, and this is a part of our progression. The athletes who are doing it in a really healthy way are able to say, okay, coach, like this makes me a little worried because we had a plan and this is different, but I trust you and I'm going to do this and I will rest per your recommendation versus somebody who has an eating disorder and say like, no, that's not a part of the plan. And I need to move my body to feel okay about being in my body. And so they train through under recovery or they continue to push their body despite scientific evidence as well as coach recommendations that perhaps their bodies need to do something different. And, and that word resistance is such a great word, Becca, because it, it really is this idea that even though this is what the science is saying, what my mind needs to feel okay in this body is so much stronger and greater that I would rather throw my performance in honor of this moment and this instant gratification of relieving my anxiety. And so that, you know, that really is the difference is is the athletes who are doing this in a healthy way. They have flexibility about them. They're able to adapt and modify based on how their bodies are responding to training and nutrition versus athletes who have illnesses are, are really rigid. They're stuck. They're resistant. They're unable to adapt and modify because the plan is to manage the daily anxiety and the constant discomfort in their mind and body versus to achieve performance. And sometimes they still want to achieve performance and that's still important to them. And they really come into this place of what's more important to me, my illness or my performance. And and that, you know, that can be really challenging for athletes. And sometimes it's like, you know what, like I use performance as a guise and I don't really care about my performance. I just want to maintain this illness. And I, I train to justify what I do, but it's not actually what I want. Performance doesn't matter to me with regards to the normalization. You know, we live in a culture where we, 
we plaster fitness and performance and outcomes and results everywhere around us, right? It used to be when we were young, it was just like on the magazine stands in the grocery store or just on the newspaper that you got every day or every week where you got to see the sports results and, and what people are doing versus now with social media. We normalize this idea of ultra fit bodies and lean body types and what certain athletes should look like and, and how to get those bodies. And so we now live in a culture that says that everybody can do this and everybody should do this because these are our ideals. This is culturally what we accept and what we strive for. And so, you know, I think what's happened is with regards to this normalization and culture is this idea that all of a sudden we now think of a fit body as a healthy body. But the truth is, is fitness can go too far. It can go into an extreme and we don't actually have, you know, representation of what happens when you go too far into fitness or what happens when you start to go too far into trying to morph your body into something that's not. We just continue to say like, hey, if you look like this, you'll be happy and healthy and you'll perform great, which then kind of reinforces sport training and fitness-based programming. But nowhere are we saying, but you know what, this exists, this exists on a continuum and there's an extreme end of this as well. And it can be unhealthy. We don't have those conversations on social media. As far as I'm aware, I should disclaim that I don't spend a lot of time on social media intentionally. So maybe they're starting to show up, but from what I've gathered, you know, not really from influencers, the idea of ultimate fitness, mm-hmm. maybe clinicians, but not from That's influencers. Yeah. Well, Kate, mm-hmm. I can see why people that you were talking to wanted you to write a book because <laughs> you're very good <laughs> at explaining these parallel worlds and how they coexist and how to treat. So where can we get access to the book? It came out in October. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So it was officially published the last week of October. It is available through the Routledge website. Mm-hmm. So Routledge is my publisher. And then it's also available on Amazon from what I know. I've not actually looked for it on Amazon, but it is available there from what I've heard. I just sneakily looked at it. Yes, it is. <laughs> okay. Thank I've you. got Thank my you. copy and I've already read it twice. Is it twice? I got a sneak peek. Oh, of course. Okay. See, when you're yeah. a demanding diva, what ends up happening? You get... <laughs> Hey, at least you define yourself as that. <laughs> <laughs> it helps a lot. Kate, thanks so much for being on. I'm so excited that you've got this book out. I hope to see you at conferences in the future. When... Or our CIS, CIS conference in Denver. Okay. Sitting oh, yeah. in silence. Yes, that's right. Yeah. You've already titled it. Yeah. Well, so, let me know if you come to sit in silence and I'll join you. <laughs> no talking, though. Only We only read in the cabin. <laughs> And drink. Hey, yes. <laughs> I love reading. Oh, gosh. Um, so, Kate, how do you live out the fit philosophy these days of trying to balance everything and kind of the world that we're living in and having a lot of demands going on? So, yeah, tell us a little bit about how maybe that's been changing over the last couple of years. Yeah, you know, reading is actually one way that I do it. I love to read, and I, I you know, I actually I purposely choose, like, one kind of more intellect professional or kind of challenge me type book where it's about personal growth or professional growth. And then I split that up with a total beach read. And so right now <laughs> I'm like digging into a, a really intense book. It, it's really causing me to think about some hard things. And mm. I also have a book on hold at the library. That's a total beach read that I can't wait to dive into next week when I finish up this really intense book that I'm currently working my way through. Wow. Um, so I do it really intentionally with regards to personal growth and reading where I challenge myself and then I balance myself. I also do it a lot 
mountain biking is my current mm-hmm. passion, my thing that I do for me. And I actually just got back a week, two weeks ago, I was out in Moab mountain biking. And I was, you know, I think and, and mountain biking is such a great example of the extreme where some people think you have to go all in and be like super hardcore. But I have little challenges that I like to work on to stretch myself as a mountain biker and, you know, improve my skills and my ability to ride terrain. But I'm also totally comfortable on, you know, a green or a blue trail, which is considered a beginner's trail. And I can find joy in that, too. And so, you know, I think really what I do is I just I try to find joy in what I'm doing. And but I also like to challenge myself and stretch myself and grow myself a bit. And so I balance the challenge with the, you know, the, the easier stuff or the lighter stuff, or, you know, and, and I don't feel like I need hard all of the time to justify who I am. I, I find a lot of joy in doing the fun, lighthearted stuff as well. I love it. Love yeah. it, love it, love mm-hmm. it. Well, until next time or when we see you again. When you write your next book, <laughs> hopefully in, like, <laughs> in five years. <laughs> She's like, oh, uh, <laughs> Oh, there's always more. Uh. <laughs> Okay, thanks for being on, and you have a great day. Oh, yes. Thank you. It's so good to hear your voices. You have a great day as well. Likewise. Bye, queens. Today's episode is brought to you by Yours Truly. I'm excited to announce the releasing of my book, Finding Your Sweet Spot in Sport, Avoiding Relative Energy Deficit in Sport, also known as REDS, by optimizing your energy balance. Be sure to follow me on social media or go to my website, www.beccamacomble.com. Bye, queens. For additional information on today's topic and guests, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fit queen Hashtag fit for a queen. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. We can't wait for you to join us next time on Fit for a Queen. Bye, queens.